0: camp. I'm sure the Lord has been dealing with us in various ways. I myself am greatly encouraged to see what God is doing in your midst. I want to take a minute to thank the assembly for the privilege given to me to come and minister God's word. Thank you very much. Now, we were talking about victory all these days. But failure or fall is also a reality in our life. All of us would know or admit that. It's a reality, a hard reality. We know that we all fail in many things. We err in many things. But remember, for God, failure is not final. That's the... ...message that I would like to bring to you from the scriptures this afternoon. Failure is not final with God. What is God's attitude to those who fail? How can they be restored? Is there hope for those who fail? You know, the word of God is full of examples of God pursuing after people who failed. You can think of Peter. You can think of Jonah. You can think of David. You can think of Manasseh. And you can think of many others. I would like to show you from the scriptures as to how God dealt with those people who failed and how God gave them an opportunity to be restored. If we are honest with ourselves, all of us would admit with one accord that we have all failed in many areas of our life. We have understood the truths of God's word. But in spite of that, we have fallen very often. So is there hope for us anymore? Can God use us anymore? Can God restore us anymore i would like to start with a verse from the book of micah chapter 7 micah chapter 7 verses 18 and 19 micah 7:18 and 19 who is a god like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage He retaineth not his anger forever, because he delighteth in mercy. He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities. And thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. In its primary context, we know that this is talking about the people of God in the Old Testament. But this is definitely true of God's people in the New Testament also. This is an attribute of God, forgiveness. God of forgiveness. We read here, He pardoneth iniquity. That's an attribute of God. God pardons iniquity. And He passeth by the transgression of the remnant of His heritage. He retaineth not his anger forever, because he delighteth in mercy. So God of the Bible is a God who delighteth in mercy. And he says, I will, uh, he will turn again, he will have compassion upon us, and he will subdue our iniquities, and he will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. This is a very, very encouraging message. In Psalm 103, we know that well-known verse, He does not deal with our sins according to our sins, nor reward us according to our iniquities. He remembers that we are but dust. What a wonderful God we have. Now, as we turn into the pages of the scripture, you see that God always goes after those who fall, those who backslide, that is something very, very comforting and encouraging. God always gives them a chance or time to repent. In the book of Revelation and chapter 2, when the Lord writes that letter to the church, at, uh, 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 to different churches, in chapter 2, there is a very remarkable statement. Look at chapter 2 of the book of Revelation. Let's read verse 21, twenty-one. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. This is talking about Jezebel in the previous verse. I gave her space, that means I gave her the opportunity, I gave her the time to repent. But she did not repent, that is a different thing. But I gave her time to repent. So God of the Bible is a God who pursues after those who fail and a God who gives time to repent. He speaks to us and he gives us time to repent. I would like to take you to, through the experiences, uh, uh, experience of some of the great men in the Bible and show you how God dealt with them when they fell. Now, a very familiar character in the New Testament is Peter himself. And his fall is notorious. All of us are familiar with his fall. When you come to the Gospel of Luke and chapter 22, Gospel of Luke chapter 22, uh, look at verses 61 and 62. Luke chapter 22, verses 61 and and 62 There we read about Peter's fall Okay, let's read that 61 and 62 And the Lord turned And looked upon Peter And Peter remembered the word of the Lord How he had said unto him Before the cock crew, uh, crow Thou shalt deny me thrice And Peter went out And wept bitterly. This is the fall of Peter. All of us know how Peter fell. He said, I do not know Jesus. I don't know who he is. Imagine Peter saying that. How could he ever say that? It's almost unbelievable how he could ever say that. Anyway, in fear, that's exactly what he did. He was afraid. And the Lord said that... You know, in verse 61, we read, When the cock crew, the Lord turned and looked upon Peter. I believe that was an act of restoration. The Lord must have deliberately turned and looked upon Peter in a way that he would understand that the Lord is deliberately looking at him. And that caused brokenness. In the heart of Peter, the, he remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said unto him, Before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. The Lord had already told that. And when he heard the cock crowing, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. That was a compassionate look. That must have been a very kind look. That must have been a sad look. But I believe that was a look of restoration. See, the Lord looked at Peter and that broke his heart. Verse 62 says, Peter went out and wept bitterly. It was the Lord's look that caused that brokenness in his heart. The Lord looks at everyone who fails. Not to condemn them but to restore them, to make them realize that they have gone wrong, to give brokenness to their heart. How compassionate our Lord is. When you come to Mark's Gospel, chapter 16, the story of Peter continues there. In Mark's Gospel, chapter 16, after Jesus rose from the dead, we read of some women going Uh, to the tomb to anoint the Lord Jesus. Mark 16. And there, in verse 6, Mark 16, and uh, um, uh, let's read verses 5 onwards. And entering into the sepulcher, that is, uh, they saw, these women, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, clothed in a long white garment, and they were afraid. Well, that is... The angel, no doubt, we know that's the angel. And the angel said, he is not here, and behold the place where they laid him. And then, see what the angel said. But go your way, tell his disciples and Peter, that he goeth before you into Galilee. There shall ye see him, as he said unto you. Go your way, tell his disciples and Peter. Why should the angel say like that? If I am giving a message to CBF, I tell someone, Okay, go and give this message to CBF. That's enough, right? I don't have to say, Tell everyone in CBF, and also, There is no need to say like that. That doesn't make sense, right? If I say, Tell everyone in CBF, I don't have to name anyone in particular, because this message is for all in the CBF. But here... The angel is telling something as directed by the Lord. The angel is not saying something of his own. The Lord had asked this angel that when these women come, this is how you should tell them. Tell them to tell the disciples and Peter. Is not Peter a disciple? Why should the angel say, tell the disciples and Peter? Can you see the compassion of the Lord there? Peter's name is specifically mentioned. Because I think if, this, if the angel had just said, go and tell the disciples, these women would go to the disciples and say, hey, disciples, this is what the angel said. Huh? Uh, asked all the disciples to go into Galilee. So then all the disciples are getting ready to go. Peter is standing in a corner Peter, are you not coming? Let's say, let's imagine John asking him, are you not coming? The Lord asked us to go to, go, uh, go to Galilee. Peter would say, well, this message is for the disciples. I am no more one of you because I said I don't know him. You people, Peter, uh, John, James, you all go. I- I'm not coming. I-, I don't feel confident to come. The Lord knew that Peter would respond like that. Therefore, the angels was instructed to take the name of Peter in addition to the disciples. Now Peter cannot say that. Hey Peter, are you not coming? The Lord specifically said, Peter also should come. How Peter would have felt at that time If the Lord had not specifically mentioned his name, Peter must have been greatly comforted and consoled in the fact that the angel took his name. This is how the Lord deals with backsliders. Dear friends, God doesn't write off anyone because they failed. God of the Bible is a God of encouragement. And not of discouragement. God doesn't write us off. God doesn't send us out of his class. God doesn't dismiss our name. Dismiss us. He doesn't erase our name. And remember, God doesn't treat our failure as final in our relationship with him. And when you come to John chapter 21, see what Peter did. In John chapter 21, after Jesus rose from the dead. See what Peter says in the very opening verses of uh, that chapter. They were all gathered together. And verse 3, Simon Peter saith unto them, I go a fishing. And then some others also said, we also go with thee. You know, if you backslide, the possibility is that there may be some others to backslide with you. There may be some others just waiting to backslide. They just want a leader. So if you say, I'm going, there may be some others to say, okay, then we are also coming. So that's what happened here. Here, Peter says, I'm going. And then others said, okay, we are also coming. Verse 4. But when the morning was come, Jesus stood on the shore. I see this as one of the most touching verses... In the whole of the Bible. That's how I look at it. Jesus. When the morning was come. Jesus stands there. On the shore. Why is he there? To eat some fish? Is that the reason why he's is there? No. He is there to restore. Peter. And all the other disciples. Who had gone. As Jesus stood there. He was talking to them. Silently, Peter, it is so easy for you to leave me and go fishing, but it is not that easy for me to forget you. You can afford to live without me, but I cannot afford to continue without you. You may not want me, but Peter, I want you. That's a message the Lord is giving to Peter standing by the seaside. You see, Jesus went after Peter. Jesus could have said, Well, it is Peter who went away from me. He's the one who denied me. He's the one who said he doesn't know me. He's the one who went fishing. If he wants to become my disciple again, let him come back. He would have been right in saying that. He had a, a reason to say that. But he never said that. Instead of demanding Peter to come to him and settle the matter, Here goes Jesus after Peter and the other disciples. When the morning was come, Jesus stood on the shore. That is true with each one of us. Whenever we have gone away from the Lord, whenever we have failed, he doesn't write us off. He comes after us and he stands by our side to restore us back unto himself. What a wonderful God we have. And... In John 21, uh, the Lord continues to talk to Peter And the Lord commissions him Feed my sheep Feed my lambs And the Lord asks him a very touching question What is that? Peter, lovest thou me? In verse 17, we read that Uh, Lovest thou me? Now, even earlier in verse 15, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou of me more than these? Verse 16, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou of me? Verse 17, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou of me? Three times the Lord asked that question. And you know how Peter answered, Peter said, eh? thou knowest that I love thee? And second time in verse 16, he said, thou knowest that I love thee? And the third time, Also he said, eh? and he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. You must have heard preachers say this. There is a difference between the words that Jesus used and Peter used. When Jesus asked him, lovest thou me, Jesus used the word agape. You know, the word agape is the word used in John 3.16. That's the highest form of love. There is another word for love in the New Testament that is philia. You know the word Philadelphia. Philia means brotherly love. Agape is the highest level of love, and philia is the next level of love. And when Jesus asked Peter, Lovest thou me? Jesus used the word agape the first time and the second time. And Peter answered, both times using the word filia. So it is something like this. Jesus is asking, Peter, do you have agape towards me? Peter says, Lord, you know that I have philia towards you. Second time, Peter, do you have agape towards me? Peter says, Lord, you know that I have filia towards you. See, Peter doesn't use the word the Lord asked him. And the third time... Now, in our English, uh, that is not clear because everywhere the word love is used. But in the original, the third time when the Lord asked, the Lord changed his word. He used the word philia. Well, Peter, you say that you have filia towards me. Let me ask you, do you really have filia towards me? That is when Peter broke down. So first two times... He asked about agape love and Peter answered in philia love. And the third time, the Lord comes down to Peter's level. He discards that word agape and he comes down to Peter's level and he uses the word filia. Do you have filia towards me? That is when Peter broke down. And we know the Lord commissioned him to feed his lamb and feed his sheep. Not only that, God gave him one more great privilege. You know what that is? Later as the Lord spoke, the Lord said in verse 18, When you were young, you uh, girdest thyself, and walkest whither thou wouldest. But when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and neither shall gird thee, and carry thee, whither thou wouldest not. This spake he, signifying by what death he should glorify God. What did Jesus mean by that? Jesus was telling him that you are going to die as a martyr for me. You are going to give your life for me. You remember sometime back Peter said, Even if all others forsake you, I will not. Even if I have to give my life for you, I will not leave you. That's what Peter said. But even when there was no, uh, uh, no situation where he should have given his life, huh, at the question of a damsel, a, a little girl, Peter denied the Lord. But the Lord is now going to give him the privilege of dying for him. The Lord doesn't cancel out what Peter said. Peter had told earlier that I am willing to die for you. But here the Lord says, All right, Peter, I am not going to cancel it out what you said. You said that in your enthusiasm, but whatever that be, I am going to give you the privilege of dying for me. When you become old, someone else shall guide you and take you. And from history or tradition, we understand that Peter was crucified Upside down. That's what tradition says. When they caught Peter to be crucified, it is said that Peter said, I am not worthy to die as my master Jesus died. Therefore, you put me upside down and crucify me. I want to kiss the feet of my master and die. And there, tradition says, Peter was crucified upside down. What a great privilege. And we know God gave him the privilege To use the keys of the kingdom of heaven and open the kingdom of heaven to Gentiles. In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, only Jews were there. It was in Acts chapter 10, for the first time, Gentiles were admitted into the kingdom of God. And God gave him the key to open the kingdom of heaven to Gentiles for the first time. What a privilege! God used Peter in the house of Cornelius. Is there anyone in the New Testament who had failed as much as Peter had failed? Any other person who said, who was walking with the Lord? Any other person who said, I don't know Jesus? He had failed miserably, utterly failed. But when he repented, wept bitterly, And turned to the Lord. And when he was willing to follow the Lord later, the Lord did not cancel out his commitment. The Lord lifted him up and gave him the privilege to be an apostle in the church of God. And also to open the kingdom of God to the Gentiles for the first time. And also to die as a martyr, to give his life for the Lord Jesus. That is the level to which the Lord raised Peter. What a wonderful God we have. We are talking about that Lord who is willing to cast a compassionate look at us, who is willing to tell the angel to take the name of Peter specifically. And also that Lord was willing to go all the way in search of Peter. And that is what we read when the morning was come. Jesus stood on the shore. So, dear brothers and sisters, if we are willing to repent and come back to the Lord, the Lord is more than willing to restore us. He is more than willing to use us in his ministry, in his work. We have all failed. I stand here and preach not because I have never failed. You look at all the men in the world, all the men whom God has used They may all have failed at some point in their life. But it was God's goodness and grace that restored them and used them mightily for the extension of God's kingdom. God is willing to do that for all of us. Another man in the Bible who failed, as we know, is a man called David. In 2 Samuel chapter 1, see how God restored David, in 2 Samuel chapter, chapter 12. Second Samuel chapter 12. We know what happened in chapter 11. David took Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, and uh, God Uriah killed. David is now guilty of murder and also adultery. You see, murder and adultery, both these sins are to be punished with death penalty. That's what the law says. In the book of Leviticus, we read that. He who committeth adultery with another man's wife shall surely be put to death. That is what we read there. And he who uh, murders another also shall be surely put to death. But David having committed both these sins, grievous sins, having failed miserably. See what God is going to do. Chapter 12. And the Lord sent Nathan unto David. Nathan is a prophet. The Lord sent Nathan unto David. The Lord did not say, well, David has done something terrible. If he wants to walk with me, let him come back to me. He didn't do that. God did not wait for for David to come back to him. Here, God sends Nathan unto David. God takes the initiative. When there was a problem between God and man in the Garden of Eden, who took the initiative to settle that problem? It was God who took the initiative to settle the problem between God and man in sending Jesus Christ into the world. We never asked God to send his son into the world. We never went to God and said, Oh God, we want a solution to the problem. We are in enmity with you. We want to get restored to you. We never did that. All had sinned and come short of the glory of God. Each one had turned his own way. Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each one have turned to his own way. We had gone away from God. But God took the initiative to restore us. God was right and we were wrong. We know that. He was the right party and we were the wrong party. Very often we say, let him come to me. I've, I haven't done anything wrong. He did something wrong, so let him come to me. That's what we usually say. If God had said that, I tell you, all of us will have go, would have gone to an eternal lake of fire. Thank God he did not say that. Though he was right and we were wrong, God took the initiative to send his son and make a way of salvation for us to come back to him. And here, when David sinned, God did not say, all right, let him come to me. Here we see God sending his prophet, Nathan, unto David with a view to restore him. And we read in verse 7, Nathan telling David, thou art that man. You are that man. You have committed sin. Here God is using Nathan to convict David of his sin. You know, in the 2nd book of Chronicles, 2nd book of Chronicles, there is a very uh, uh, touching verse. Chapter 36. 2nd Chronicles, chapter thirty six this verse is about God sending his prophets or his servants to the erring people of God, just as God sent uh, Nathan to David in chapter thirty six second chronicles, look at verse fifteen and the Lord, God of their fathers, sent to them by his messengers, rising up betimes. And sending because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. God sent his messengers over and over again. That's the meaning. God sent his messengers over and over again because he had compassion on his people. God sent these people over and over again, because he had compassion. You know, in the margin of my Bible it says, in the KJV it says, bit But in the margin of my Bible it says, that is, continually and carefully. God sent his messengers continually to his people, over and over again. Why? Because God had compassion on his people. God wanted them to come back. Therefore, God sent these men, these prophets or messengers continually to his people. What a wonderful God. Here, you see God sending Nathan to to David to restore David. And David says later, when he said, thou art that man, David says in verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord. And then what did Nathan say? And the Lord also hath put away thy sin, thou shalt not die. When he repented, he wrote that psalm, Psalm 51. That's a psalm worth studying, meditating. He runs into God's presence, falls prostrate before God and says, "O God, have mercy upon me. He says, Against thee and thee alone have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. David repents with a broken heart. And he cries out to God and says, Oh God, have mercy upon me. God caused that spirit of repentance in David. By sending his prophet, God took the initiative. As we read in the book of Revelation, God always gives time for us to repent. When you read the Bible, God speaks to you. When you hear a message like this, God speaks to you. Through various incidents and circumstances, various things that happen in your life, God speaks to you. Maybe through an accident, God speaks to you. Maybe through some sickness, God speaks to you. Some problem in the office, God is trying to draw your attention. Through something that happens in our family, God is trying to speak to us. He is trying to get our attention. Come on, listen to what I am going to say. I want you to set things right in your life. I am speaking to you. Are we able to hear the voice of God through the messages we hear, through the passages we read, and also through the incidents that happen in our life? God speaks to us with a view to restore us. That's what exactly happened in the life of David. It is true that David had to suffer some of the consequences of what he did, because of the righteousness of God it was necessary. That's a different thing. But, God forgave him. How do you know God forgave him? You know, in, in Leviticus 20 and verse 10, you can read that later, Leviticus 20, 10 and 24, 17. Leviticus twenty ten and 24, 17 it talks about a murderer and an adulterer. That they shall be put to death. That's a punishment for murdering and adultery. And when the when, when the prophet said, Nathan said, God also hath forgiven you. How do you know God has forgiven you? Because David was not sentenced to die. If God had not forgiven, David should have been put to death two times. He deserved double death penalty for murder one and for adultery another. But God forgave him. So he was spared of being killed. He did not have to die. That is because God forgave him. He had to suffer some consequences that was necessary to fulfill God's righteousness. But still, God restored him. And when you come to the New Testament, you read of him as a man after God's own heart. Imagine that. In the book of Acts, we read of David as a man after God's own heart. God used David. God lifted him up. God put him on the throne of the Son of God. And God used him as a king, as a leader. God used him to write so many Psalms. And David is generally considered as a man of God. In spite of all that happened in his life, the restoration in the life of Peter was perfect. The restoration in the life of David also was perfect. Another character in the Bible Who backslid, disobeyed And God went after Is Jonah All of us are familiar with the story of Jonah In Jonah, uh, the whole book of Jonah Is a very interesting book You know, in the book of Jonah We see Jonah disobeying God He fled from the presence of God He fled from the plan of God He fled from the blessings of God. Jonah disobeyed God. When Jonah was asked to go 500 miles northeast from his place, he went 2,000 miles southwest. That's his obedience. Like some children, right? You ask him to come here, then he will go there. Jonah was asked to go 500 miles northeast. And he decided to go 2,000 miles southwest. That was Jonah's obedience. The most disobedient prophet in the Bible is Jonah. Jonah is also notorious for another thing, you know. There, there is no other character in the Bible who have answered God, back-answered God, like Jonah. Later in the chapter, you know, when Jonah was angry... God asked him, I think in a very, very mild tone, Jonah, is it right for you to get angry like this? You know what Jonah said? Even unto, it is right, even unto death. Oh, what an answer. No other man ever answered God like that in the Bible. Most rebellious prophet, most disobedient prophet in the Bible. That was Jonah. God had given him the privilege To be the first overseas missionary. You know, Jonah is the first overseas missionary in the Bible. The first man who ever was sent out of his own country to another country to preach. Jonah is the first overseas missionary in the Bible. God gave him that privilege. And God wanted to use him to convert that whole city with just one message. Imagine a whole city turning to the Lord just by one message that a preacher gave. And even there, Jonah was angry that people were saved. That is another thing about Jonah. The only preacher in the history of the world who ever got angry that people were saved at his preaching. Have you ever heard of any other preacher like that? You think I'll be very angry if the whole of Bangalore gets saved in my preaching? No, there's no other preacher like that in the history of the world. But Jonah was very angry. He was upset with God because people turned to God at his message. That is what Jonah is. If you take a study of the book of Jonah, you learn many wonderful lessons. You know, Jonah did three things. He fled from the presence of God. He fled from the the plan of God. He fled from the blessings of God. Blessings God had planned for him. But you know what God did? When you read carefully the book of uh, uh, Jonah, you see God doing six things to bring Jonah back. Six things. Look at those six things. You know, what are the six things that he did? In chapter 1, we read in verse 4, But the Lord sent out a great wind. Now the reason for my saying that God did it is In all these verses it says the Lord did it It doesn't say a strong wind came It says the Lord sent out a great wind Number 2 Chapter 1 verse 17 The Lord had prepared a great fish Number 3 Chapter 2 verse 10 And the Lord spake unto the fish and it vomited out Jonah And number 4 Chapter 4, verse 6. The Lord God prepared a gout. That's a plant. And the next one, verse 7. But God prepared a worm. Next one, verse 8. God prepared a vermin, east wind. Did you see the six things God did? We say God did it because in all these six verses it says, God did it. It doesn't say the the whale or the fish felt very uncomfortable and it wanted to vomit Jonah out. That's not what you read. It says God commanded that fish to vomit him out. It doesn't say a plant came up automatically. No. It says God prepared a plant. So when Jonah did three things, going away from God's presence, God's plan, and God's blessings, God did six things to bring Jonah back. He caused an east wind and he prepared a fish and then he uh, 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 caused that fish to worm it out and then he prepared a plant. He prepared a worm to eat that plant up and you prepared a worm and east wind. Now, I'm not going into the details of the story. I just want to show you how compassionately God went after this one man. See, in the book of Jonah... We are reading about, you know, uh, the people in Nineveh, uh, a great number of them, so many of them, who turned to the Lord. Six score thousand persons, verse 11, chapter 4, verse 11, uh, more than six score thousand persons, they were saved. So easily, so to say. But to convert the missionary was a big task for God. It was easier for God to get these more than six score thousand persons than to get his servant converted. What's the lesson you learn here? God is interested not only in the salvation of so many thousands of people outside. God is interested in the restoration of one man who already knows God. I think we belong to that category. We don't belong to those, you know, thousands of people out there who are living in sin. No. They need to be saved, no doubt. God is working for that. But I think God has to take more effort, if I can say so, to restore one of us. Each one is important to God. You see, if God was only interested in the salvation of souls, unbelievers, you know, this book of Jonah uh, could have stopped with, uh, you know, chapter 2 or uh, uh, chapter 3. Because it says, the whole city got converted and... Uh, Verse 10, you know, chapter 3, verse 10 says, God saw their works that they had turned to God. And God repented of the punishment that was to be given to them. And they were all saved. That is chapter 3. Why is there a chapter 4 in the book of Jonah? What's the need? See, the story is God asked Jonah to go. He went somewhere else. Then God brought him back. And Jonah went and preached. And the whole city got saved. Mission accomplished. So we can close the book of Jonah, right? First he did not obey, later he obeyed. And the whole city turned to God and all were saved. That's the end of the story. But for God, that's not the end of the story. He wants that chapter 4. For what? Now, the missionary has to be converted. God had to go after him and do so many things. In spite of his rebellion. God wanted to tell him, Jonah, you need my attitude, my heart. You need my heart of compassion. That's a lesson God was trying to teach Jonah. What a wonderful God. God who goes after Jonah to restore him, though it was sort of difficult to do that. Let me show you just one more. From the book of Chronicles again. Second Chronicles. Chapter 33. There you read about a king called Manasseh. He is one of the uh, most wicked kings among God's people. You can hardly find a king who was more wicked than Manasseh. In Second Chronicles 33, when you, when you read the, of the things that he had done, you know, terrible things he had done. In verse 4 you read, He built altars in the house of the Lord. eh? And uh, you know, in in Jerusalem, where God was supposed to keep his name. And in verse 5, he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he caused his children to pass through fire. All that. In that holy place, where God's name was to be honored. Right there, inside the temple... You can see under the nose of God he built altars to other gods. He provoked God to the maximum. How terrible that is. But you know what God did? In verse 10 we read and the Lord spake to the Lord spoke to Manasseh. Should God speak to such a fellow who had deliberately defied God, brought in idols into the temple of God and under the nose of God he was sacrificing to other deities causing the little babies or children to pass through fire. That was not done in ignorance. It was deliberately taking a stand against the Lord God Jehovah. God should not have spoken to him according to us. What's the need for God to speak to him? But in verse 10 we read, the Lord spoke to Manasseh. You see, God gives opportunity for all to repent. Even such a wicked king, God took time to speak to him. God humbled himself in a way to speak to him. But you know what happened? But they would not hear. Look at that. God was so good. God should not have spoken to him. But God was so good and he humbled himself in a way. So as to speak to this man and his people. But they said, God, you mind your business, we will mind our business. You have nothing to do with us. We don't don't want to listen to you. They did not hear him. And then what did God do? Verse 11. The Lord brought upon them the captains of the host of the king of Assyria, which took Manasseh among the thorns and bound him with fetters and carried him to Babylon. And here we want to give a clap to God and say, well done. You should have done this earlier. Now what happened to Manasseh? The enemies came, caught him, bound him with fetters and with thorns, and they are dragging him to Babylon. God, very good. Well done. This is what you should have done a bit earlier. But do you know the rest of the story? Verse 12. When he was in affliction he besought the lord his god and humbled himself greatly before the god of his fathers when he was in trouble he humbled himself and he cried unto god we want to tell god here a hey, god when he is in trouble he will cry unto you okay don't listen to him that is his trick when you talked to him earlier He did not hear. But now that he's in trouble, he will cry and say, God, I'm sorry and all that. Please don't listen to that, okay? He humbled himself and he cried unto God. What did God do? In verse 13, and prayed unto him and he was entreated of him and God heard his supplication. When this man humbled himself, God heard his prayer. And brought him again to Jerusalem. Into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew. That the Lord he was God. God listened to his prayer. Because he humbled himself. And God brought him back to Jerusalem. What a wonderful God. There is a great truth here. You know what that is? God is willing to listen to anyone who would humble himself before God. You know that well-known verse in 2nd Chronicles 7:14, If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and seek my face and leave their wicked ways, then I shall hear from heaven and heal the land. Anyone who humbles himself Dear brother, dear sister, if you will humble yourself before God and say, Oh God, I was wrong. I take responsibility for my failure. I have nothing else to say. I am wrong. I humble myself before you. God cannot turn his face away from you. William McDonald, that great man of God, that great commendator, he has given a very good comment. I don't know, I don't remember if it is in his commentary or elsewhere, maybe in his commentary on this verse. You know what he said? I don't remember the exact sentence, but it is something like this. God is strong. He is almighty. And he is against the proud. But when a man humbles himself before God, God becomes weak and cannot resist him anymore. Do you know when God becomes weak? When a man beats his breast and cries out and says, Oh God, I've sinned against you. I am sorry. I humble myself. This great and mighty God, he cannot do anything. It is as if he becomes weak. He cannot resist The prayer of repentance. That is what Willie MacDonald observes about this verse in his writing. God who stands against the proud and determined to punish them on one hand, but on the other side, he becomes weak when you humble yourself before God and cry out to God for mercy. Than God, it is as if God loses all his strength. God cannot stand against such a person. God shows mercy to him. That is the God of the Bible. So in conclusion, let me say this. God of the Bible is a God, as we read in Micah, who is compassionate, who shows mercy, who pardoneth iniquity. And his delight is in showing mercy, not in punishing And he always gives us time to repent. He wants to restore us. He takes the initiative in speaking to us, in touching our lives in various ways, to give us an opportunity to get back to him in repentance. But if we do not make use of that opportunity, then things may still go wrong with our life. But when we have a God who is willing to forgive, why should we not Make use of that opportunity. God shows his grace, his mercy, his compassion, his goodness to all who would humble themselves. We repeatedly refer to that verse in 1 John 1 nine: If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we get to heaven... I'm sure we are going to meet so many people who had fallen into sin, so many who had backslidden, so many who had failed utterly in their life. But as they stand there before the Lord, they stand in bright colors receiving wonderful rewards from God because in spite of their failures, they repented and they turned to God and God used them mightily for his glory that can be true of you that can be true of me shall we pray I just want to give a minute for us to settle our accounts with God I'm sure God has been speaking to us in various ways he has been pinpointing certain areas in our life that needs correction And he's willing to help us. Are we willing to humble ourselves, as did Manasseh, and say, Lord, I'm sorry I've gone wrong. I take responsibility. I confess my failure. I want you to help me. Will you make that your prayer right now? As we spend a minute in silence before God, Will you sort out your issues with God and tell him you are willing to turn away from all that you know to be wrong and willing to live a life pleasing to him. In your own strength, you can never do that. But seek the face of God and seek his strength and he will give you his strength. Spend a minute in God's presence talking to him and then we shall pray. Heavenly Father, we thank thee that thou art a God of compassion, that delighteth in mercy. We are standing here, we are here only because of thy goodness and thy mercy, not because we have lived a perfect life, not because we have never failed, but because of your goodness and your forgiving spirit. Thank you, Lord, for teaching us great and precious lessons during these three days. And we were looking at thy expectations of us how you want us to live an abundant Christian life And we admit with one accord that we have all failed In various areas of our life In living up to thy expectations We have disappointed you We have very often grieved thy spirit But oh God we thank you for the message of encouragement and comfort that came to us This afternoon We were looking at various Men in the Bible Who had erred away from thy ways but whom thou didst restore in thy goodness and mercy, and whom thou didst use tremendously in a wonderful way in their life. We take courage from these truths, and we know that these are all written for our encouragement and our edification. Lord, we also want to be honest with you, give us the grace to humble ourselves, and settle all our issues with thee, and know for sure that you have forgiven all our failures. Help us to be careful in the days to come. Help us not to depend on ourselves, but trust in thy grace and seek thy strength every day of our life that we may be able to live a life that is pleasing unto thee. Thank you that it pleased thee to speak to us and we pray that thy spirit might continue to minister to the needs of our hearts even after we go from this place. We worship you, we thank you, we give you all the glory and offer this prayer. In the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.